Hello and welcome to Composer Chat, a podcast where we talk a little about music, a little about life, and a whole lot about whatever nonsense happens to come up otherwise. I'm your host, Jason Nitch, and each week I am joined by one of my favorite composers out there in the world. It's my show, so that's why it's my favorite composers who get the invites, and you're just going to have to live with that. Stick around, we're going to do a deep dive with some of the most creative people in the world. You're listening to Composer Chat. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Composer Chat. I'm your host, Jason Nitch. Yes, I'm a composer. Yes, I'm here every week. But each week, I'm joined by a guest composer of my own choosing. And we'll spend the next hour talking with them with frequent interruption by me. This week, I'm super excited by my guest. I am joined today by Paul Dooley. Paul, good morning. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Great to see you and chat with you. That's wonderful. I'm so excited that you could join me today. And um, if you could just take uh, take 30 or 40 seconds, you know, for our listeners uh, who may not be as familiar with your work as I am, and uh, just tell them what kinds of stuff you, you normally like to write. Great. Yeah, I'm a composer based in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan, where I teach uh, part-time uh, electronic music classes. And the rest of the time, I'm a freelance composer. At the moment, and probably for the past five to 10 years, I've been writing mostly orchestral and wind ensemble music. My A lot of my orchestra pieces have been transcribed for uh, wind ensemble, and so that pretty much takes up all my freelance time. That's really great, and um, and I just saw you. I had a chance to to see you at at, at Midwest uh, really briefly, and uh, the Baylor at the Baylor Wind Ensemble concert. They played your piece Canticles. Um, which is really, really brilliant. My opinion, I think it stole the show. All deference to John Mackey and Julian Bliss. I thought your piece really stole the show. Um, it was it was my favorite, I think, of, of the night. Um, and to Elsa. We'll, we'll give Elsa its due, but um, really enjoyed your piece. Um, and um, I will say, I first became aware of your music, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so. Uh, Mike Haithcock was one of my teachers. I won't tell you how many years ago, um, back when he was teaching at Baylor. And uh, I think he sent me, uh, I think it was Masks and Machines, maybe he he pointed me to, um, and uh, which is obviously a really great piece. If you're not familiar with that piece, listeners, go go check that one out. But uh, but anyway, uh, it's always really wonderful to run across you and your music um, because you you write such cool stuff. So um, tell us a little bit about kind of like what's what's your sort of origin story in music? How did you get into music to begin with, like when you were growing up, making music, et cetera? Great. Well, when I was a little baby I actually listened to music all the time I remember that clearly my father and mother had a CD player as well as a vinyl player and I just listened through uh, our vast collection of vinyl and CDs CDs were kind of in the early days when I was a little little baby but uh, I listened to a lot of rock uh, mostly rock music actually Dire Straits and Van Halen and Huey Lewis and the News and then I really liked that 80s band, The Fine Young Cannibals, <laughs> for some reason. Um, <laughs> I was never all that interested in performing. We always had a piano at our house, this really mediocre upright piano. Um, but when third grade came around, uh, my mom, that's when you, at least in California, that's when you, you could like play an instrument. So my mom uh, really insisted that I try an instrument. She said, it doesn't matter, you know, what instrument, just try, just try something. And I said, okay. And I was kind of drawn to the drums. Actually, the other really important band that I listened to at a child was Rush, and I always loved uh, Neil Peart, and I was one of the, uh, you know, the, the air drummer people. So I think, well, I'll, I'll try playing playing drums, and so I, my mom got me a practice pad, one of those Remo practice pads, and that's how I how I started. And I, of course, within a, a few months, I got deeply into the, you know, playing playing the drum pad. And, and playing in band and, and learning about music and uh within i think a year or two my parents had purchased me a drum set they got me actually my uncle is a pretty well-known recording engineer in uh, los angeles and they asked him to kind of scrounge up a, a cool vintage drum set for me so he got me a ludwig like vintage 70s drum set and uh i was playing drum set uh and i remember playing like the whole summer of you know 1990 like 1993 or four or something uh, in, in the uh, in, in, in one of our bedrooms playing the drums all summer. So I was really into drums. I played a little marching snare. Um, I slowly learned the mallet instruments. But um, when I was, I think, in seventh or eighth grade, I was going to my weekly drum lesson. 
in Santa Rosa, California. It was downtown. And then my mom and I usually would do something after my lesson, like on Friday evening, and we go to dinner or we'd go to a movie or something. And uh, that Friday, whatever Friday that was, we went to see the movie Shine, uh, which is with Jeffrey Rush playing David Helfcott, this kind of, uh, you know, crazy pianist. And uh, this guy was so passionate about piano. I, it really just triggered me. And I, I just became instantly uh, very inspired and interested in piano. So I remember going home and just starting to play that old upright piano that we had at the house all along. And I just started playing it. Um, I didn't really know how to read music very well, like pitches and key signatures. Um, but I just started playing and uh, slowly I figured out, you know, how the musical notes work. And I, I learned some basic, some basic music and was, was learning like Clementi sonatas. I learned like the first movement of the Moonlight Sonata um, after that took, you know, four or five months of just kind of slogging through. That piece is in C sharp minor, which has some, you know, double sharps for the leading tone <laughs> and everything. So it's that a was a starter little... piece. Yeah, that was a little, that was a big chunk to bite off by beginning to read music, but I figured it out slowly. And of course my ear knew how it sounded. So um, I just really got into piano. And then from that point on, I was just obsessed with piano and the, the sort of the creative process of just kind of writing music, um, just improvising was very natural to me. I never really focused on learning. I never spent all my time just learning pieces. It was always about like, just playing and making sounds for some reason that seemed really intuitive to me. And I got into jazz piano as well, but just the kind of this, uh, this idea of improvisation, just creating stuff from scratch was very organic to me for some reason from the beginning. And around that time, my mom found me the perfect teacher um, who was sort of a uh, improvisation, jazz, creative, um, spiritual, psychological advisor for a, a young, like 11 year old, 12 year old. He was the perfect teacher for me. He was very, very impactful on my life. Um, his name is Doc Collins, Gary Collins. And I studied with him all the way through high school. And so, at, you know, when I got into high school, I, I was really focused on writing music. I first wrote a piano sonata and then I wrote a two piano piece and then some chamber music. And uh, I, I was arranging songs. I was arranging Beatles songs. That was, that was my exercises and my lessons. I arranged like, um, if I fell, the other big part of my life at that time was soccer. I played soccer my whole life. And at a certain oh, wow. point I got to that breaking point around high school and I decided to quit soccer. And that was like one of the biggest life decisions I have ever had to make when I was about 14 years old, because that had been my entire life for 10 to 11 years before that. And I just really focused on music. And from that point on, it was pretty clear that I was going to, um, focus on music, you know, even beyond high school. Wow, that's that's really great. Um, you mentioned that you know one of your first pieces was a piano sonata. Can you talk about that for just a little bit? Like, like was it something? Did you write it for yourself to play? Did you play it anywhere? Was it was it for something, or was it just sort of, hey, I think I want to write something? Uh, well, my very first piece, I, I call my my first piece is actually kind of a pre piece, a pre composition. It's a uh, it was a piano sonata. But I was, like I mentioned, I was learning those those Clementi piano sonatas or sonatinas, yeah, yeah. they're called. Mm -hmm. And one of them was an A major, right? So three sharps. And fortunately, when you play music in A major without the key signature, it mode shifts to the natural minor, so A minor. And when I was learning that piece, I didn't yet understand what key signature was. So I was like, wow. oh, those three, like pound sign, sharp things, whatever they are on the side of the, I just, I, I don't know what that is. So don't need to worry about that. And so I played this piece, uh, shifted to the natural minor and uh, it sounded excellent. It sounded great. And then at some point, like a month later, my mom said, no, no, you, all those notes have to be raised the whole time. The, you know, what is it? The F sharps and the G sharps and the C sharps. Right. Right. And, and I, I tried it. I was like, Ooh, no, no, that's, that's no good. And, uh, <laughs> And so that was kind of the light bulb. And I, I turned that piece into uh, my own composition. I, I, I kind of started with a mode shifted Clementi and then it became like the first Paul Dooley piece. <laughs> uh, and I actually performed that piece, at, I think in my seventh or eighth grade, like graduation or end of the year ceremony. That was the first time I ever played. It's very hazy to me, I remember it, but I remember I, I got like a really big, ovation afterwards you know it was like an original composition by like an eighth grader and so that was like 
really cool. Um, so that was my, that was my, my first big piece. I spent, you know, six months on it and it was very basic, you know, all, mostly all white notes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. Well, okay. So then let's fast forward a little bit in your, in your writing career. What would you say was like, was there a big, like a big commission or a big performance where you, you wrote something and, and, and somebody played it and you thought, you know, I could really like, this could really be um, something that I get serious about and, and pursue. Um, Like, like what, what was that performance for you? Um, well, the thing that really confirmed that I could be a composer and you could do this for like a lifestyle and a a living was, uh, the Santa Rosa symphony, my hometown, um, play, used to play quite a bit of John Adams music. And, uh, in, I think my sophomore year of high school, yeah, it's my sophomore year, the orchestra played one of John Adams. It's kind of a concert opener. It's a long concert opener. It's called Slaninsky's Earbox, which is just a really incredible uh cerebral exciting orchestral piece and uh i was just completely blown away by what i heard live and um john adams was also kind of like our local composer in northern california so he would come to the santa rosa symphony occasionally he was friends with jeffrey kahane who's the conductor of the santa rosa symphony and uh he's he's also a world famous pianist jeffrey kahane um but uh, that was like, okay, so this guy's, you know, it's a living guy. He, his music gets played all over the world. Um, I loved what I heard. It's like, yes, that was kind of like a confirmation of this is, you know, all this time I was spending, I'm finding myself spending all day, every day at the piano, like working on music. And so that was kind of a, a acknowledgement that, you know, a realization that I could actually do this um, as, as, as a lifestyle. But in terms of my own music, um, I didn't really have any success for like, you know, 10 years or 15 years, <laughs> you know, it was the, the drive to be a composer was so strong. Um, yeah. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And I really didn't have a, a, a goal of like, or I want to do this by this age. Like, you know, I was just completely naive. Uh, it wasn't, it really wasn't until, I mean, I had an orchestral piece played by the USC symphony. I went to USC for my undergrad. I, they played that my senior year. That was a pretty big, cool thing. Donald Crockett, uh, the composition chair at USC conducted it. It was a nice. major big deal for me. Um, but I didn't really have any success with, you know, groups wanting to play my music until beginning my doctorate. That's where I really started to, uh, everything started to come together, all that work I had put in over like 10, 15 years. So it took a while. Sure. Well, um, this is kind of a this is kind of a loaded question, but I'm always really fascinated by how uh, by how different people answer this question. Um, other than yourself, who's who's somebody that's out there writing right now? Maybe somebody we haven't heard of, um, whose work you 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 really love and you think is doing like really creative things. Uh, someone we haven't heard of, um, I would say uh, maybe two people. Like, so. Composer I really admire is Holly Harrison in Australia, Australian composer. Um, she's a friend of mine. I, I think I met her probably like 10 years ago, but she's just now kind of cracking into the band world a little bit. Um, she had a performance at CBDNA uh, by University of Georgia, a piece called Splinter. And um, she's starting to, to just just starting to, to get recognized in the United States, but she's a really versatile musician, a trumpeter, flutist, drummer. She kind of wow. does everything. Um, and she's one of the hottest composers in Australia. And uh, I think what she, she the music's like kind of very, very free, very quirky, playful, um, but crafted extremely well at the same time. So it's, you know, it, it's really engaging music. So I would, I would, oh, I would check out Holly Harrison. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. The other, the other composer I'd say is probably Jules Pegram, who's another friend mm-hmm. of mine, uh, Los Angeles based composer. He went to the University of Michigan. Uh, but uh, incredibly talented composer, uh, also interested in the film world. He does, does a lot of film scoring, but uh, a master technician, uh, orchestration, um, encyclopedia of knowledge, Jules <laughs> is, uh, is an incredible person. He's like a genius, savant. Um, 
So he has several pieces for band. He's, his music's starting to get played. He had a big commission by a bunch of uh, bands from around the United States this past year, a piece called L.A. Tudes, like Etudes, but Los Angeles, L.A. Tudes. Oh, nice. So I'm guessing That's a lot clever. of people are playing that piece next year. And uh, so, yeah, I check out Jules Pegram too. Very cool. Well, it's it's probably not a coincidence that so many really amazing creative people have passed through the University of Michigan. Um, can you talk for a second about like what that was like for you as a student? Um, and then like, what is that like now being back on the faculty and seeing everything from that side? Sure. Well, I came to University of Michigan in 2007 as a master's student, and I always knew University of Michigan was a great school. I remember seeing like the USA News or Today, whatever those college rankings are. And yeah. When I was like in high school and first, I remember University of Michigan being number one <laughs> back in uh, for composition back in like 2002. Sure. And um, I think it was because they had the most people getting doctorates, getting jobs hired around the country. I think that was the metric or something. Yeah. Um, so Michigan was almost, always on my radar. I almost went to Michigan for my undergrad. Uh, but uh, it seemed time to move across the country by the time I was, you know, 22 years old. And um, I studied with Frank to Kelly at USC for my undergrad and he had gone to Michigan. So he really thought Michigan would be a great place for me to go. But um, when I got there, uh, it, it immediately felt like uh, the right place for me. I loved going to USC. Uh, unfortunately, USC is like, in a, it, you know, in like, Los Angeles, very intense city environment. And that's not my yeah. natural habitat. <laughs> Amazing <laughs> school, but the environment wasn't uh, uh, the greatest for me. So when I got to Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's a very green, uh, just amazing little town. And so I felt very comfortable there. At the same time, the composers, the student composers, extremely high level. I was somewhat intimidated uh, by the level of the students uh, around that time. I just remember people just being so professional, you know, going to the student recitals, the composer forum concerts, and just being amazed by what people were doing. But at the same time, there wasn't a um, kind of an, there wasn't that austere feeling of like, you know, some, I'm not going to name any other schools, but other schools where it's like, can be very icy and there's a separation between the the faculty and the students or oh, sure. you know, like, the, the students are never good enough or, you know, there, there's, there's none of that at Michigan. It was very open and nurturing and, and uh, right, right. Like all, all of the uh, creative energy was, and, and magic was kind of right there in reality, rather than like you having to figure out, figure it out for yourself. So mm -hmm. uh, that was a really uh, inspiring environment. Uh, made a lot of friends here. Um, I was really driven. Um, I just, you know, composed a ton of music, uh, when I first started, I was working with Michael Doherty, um, who's uh, just a fantastic teacher. Um, I, I worked with him for several years um, and I just learned so much and just wrote, wrote, wrote. And so it was just a great environment to be in. Um, ended up staying for my doctorate. And as I mentioned, yeah, my music started to actually get played by orchestras and bands and chamber groups by the time I was finishing my doctorate. And um, um I guess being on faculty, um, yeah, I'm. It's hard. It's hard to answer that question. I mean, I, I teach in the performing arts technology department, so we have composers focused more on electronic music, and more and more mm -hmm. the you know the, the classical composers from the composition department are coming over to take classes in the path department. I have a lot of composers take my class. Um, in fact, I was just talking to an incoming master's student yesterday um, who wants to take. Uh, the, the electronic music classes, but um, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, it's hard to really answer that question, the different view. I think the students are more talented and higher level than ever, uh, especially in electronic music. I mean, I'm just increasingly blown away by the level of the uh, skill and the technical expertise and creative expertise by even freshmen. I mean, I work with freshmen in my pat my PAT classes. And um, I mean, I think we have, it's just a matter of time before like a hit song was written in, in these classes by, you know, these young, sure. these young students, the, the, the level is extremely high. And I think that's because probably online learning and YouTube has come so far, you can pretty much go onto YouTube and learn anything. Right. 
so a lot of these students, even 18 years old, come in and are just versed in, in everything. Uh, yeah. Like tech, all the technical aspects of how to like write electronic music. And so um, I'm just blown away. The level is higher than ever. So that's that's really cool to see. You know, sometimes you'd see like, you know, as you get older and you get more experience, like you're, you know, maybe you'd be less impressed with the, the younger students or feel more of a separation with them. But it's really right. the opposite of that. Yeah, that's really great. Well, um, do you have, uh, hopefully you don't, but do you have like a really great like uh, rejection story or something that you were really excited about that didn't work out or or something like that? Hopefully you don't have one, but but anything like that? Um, exciting rejection. Uh, well, the I remember for my master's, uh, I, I auditioned really at two places. I, I auditioned at Michigan and, and Juilliard. <laughs> and uh i can't tell you how polar opposite the interviews were <laughs> and uh i went to michigan and it was more about having a conversation with the faculty i had an interview with william bolcom who was still on faculty and susan body who was still on faculty yeah, wonderful great. interview just an open conversation we started i remember we started talking about orchestration books and orchestration treatises and i had been gone down the rabbit hole and read all the orchestration books going all the way back to the Berlioz orchestration book. And William Bolcom was really excited by that because he knows he kind of has a similar interest in orchestration books. So that was a great interview. We just had a great conversation. And then I had an interview with, um, with Evan Chambers, I think, and, hmm. and maybe Eric Santos, but it was just, it was, they just want to hear you talk and hear what you think about music and everything. So just to getting to know you yeah. and, um, and, you know, having an intelligent conversation, they didn't ask questions where there was a right or wrong answer, you know? Right. And then right, right. So I figured that's, that's what master's interviews are like. And then I went to Juilliard and I just got like hit by a freight train. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was like, I walked into my interview with one of the composers and it was like, all right, name 10 pieces in this style by these com composers from this country. And okay. Now discuss the history of the string quartet, starting with Haydn, you know? Okay. Now, um, whatever, you know, and then one of the composers went to the piano, I remember, and started playing notes and chords and asking me to identify, um, chords and harmonies and, and stuff, which I could do. I had no problem, but it was like, um, it was just completely different. It didn't really seem like they were interested in, uh, you know, me as an artist, it was more very technical and, uh, yeah. gotcha, right or wrong questions. And, I, that was, and of course, I didn't get into Juilliard, so uh, it was really those two schools, and I, and I really wanted to go to Michigan anyway. So that was a pretty big, uh, maybe not necessarily a rejection, but a complete, um, a complete shellacking that I received during yeah. my my, uh, my interview <laughs> at Juilliard. So I remember that 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 burned pretty pretty big. It was like, you know, I was completely unprepared for what I, I went into, like you know, the yeah. gladiator arena and just got <laughs> right. <out. laughs> so. right right how fascinating that 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 it was uh, such a polar opposite sort of experience but you know i guess that's why we go on those interviews and why we do those campus visits and things and the 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 right place for you sort of reveals itself um typically. i guess i guess i'll add one thing which is the biggest irony is i when i went to interview milton babbitt was still on faculty oh, wow and you know at Juilliard yeah and my best interview was with Milton Babbitt actually huh uh, he we had a, a great conversation he, the interview with Milton Babbitt was pretty much like the interviews I had at Michigan it was just a great conversation he asked me all about my music and he uh, he was looking through my scores and we were talking about my influences and stuff it was very open-ended and I'm glad I got to meet him for yeah oh minutes. yeah that was that <laughs> right 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 Oh, how, how wonderful. Yeah, man, that, that, that would be a great conversation to be able to have. Oh, what a yeah, great thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, do you have any, um, do you have any like big bucket list projects that like you just keep in the, on the back shelf or you're like one day I want to get an opportunity to do something like this, but, uh, hasn't materialized yet. Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking about that question. A few people have asked me that, and, and it's actually hard for me to answer. I have like weird things that I'd love to do, like that are that I don't even know are realistic. <laughs> um, they they revolve around like 
the artists that I loved as a child. And I don't know, like I'd love to, to do a collaboration with Bruce Hornsby. Mm, yeah. Famous, famous singer songwriter, still going strong. He still tours. He plays sure. you know, 20, 30 concerts a year. Right. Uh, he was one of my idols. Um, I would, uh, you know, and then like on the classical side, I, I, I love to like write a, a full length symphony, you know, like for the Berlin Philharmonic or something where right. I just no holds barred, just write whatever I want. Sure. That would be, that'd be amazing. And then um, someday, I mean, I'm not feeling any urgency on this, but I, I'd love to do, um, you know, a, a, a full film, a full length film score. Um, I know how to do it. I've, I've done a few short films. Um, yeah. I met, I met some, at, some concerts in Los Angeles at, 10 years ago, I met uh, some actors and directors and um, I worked, I did a few short film scores and um, it was a lot of fun. So that's something that's like not, not urgent for me, but you know, I'd love to explore that um, right. moving forward. And um, I'm also, I'm just starting to write a little bit more like kind of, like, you know, lower grade level uh, band music. And um, I'm finally just feeling ready to do that now. I was always intimidated by writing the lower grade levels band music so that's something that I, that's kind of like at the front of my mind that i'm excited about and i'm finally gonna to do I, I feel ready to do as well that's really wonderful it's it's i think people underestimate how difficult it is to write at that level and be really creative and create something that's really artistic and that's really you know um, that's really cool because of all the limitations that you that you end up with in terms of the performers. And so that's really it's really wonderful that you're that you're starting to think that way because we, you know, as, as I really uh, encourage uh, as many great writers as possible to take a stab at it. Um, and I think some of them surprise themselves. That's really great. Um, it's, humbling. it's humbling for sure. Uh, and um, to do something original, like like different and creative is, is really challenging at those lower grade levels. So that's yeah. why it's taken me so long, like 10 years to feel ready to do it. And and then wind band, this is a bigger topic, but wind band orchestration as well is extremely challenging um, sure. to do something, to do things that are different and also you know, original and, and that also work really well. Right. That's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of boxes to check. For, mm. all that. And for sure. It's, it's very, the wind band orchestration is significantly more challenging than, you know, orchestral orchestration, in my opinion. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't ever really thought about it, but yeah, you, uh, yeah, you're probably right about that. Um, wow, fascinating. Um, so, do you ever um, experience like a writer's block or have trouble getting started on something, or like, do you yeah, ever experience every, that? How do you how do you work your way through that? Yeah, pretty much every piece. Um, <laughs> I, I mean yeah with every piece there's that moment when like the electrical jolt goes in and then it has a heartbeat you know uh right. the piece becomes self-aware <laughs> and then the right itself you know it's a question of when that happens um sometimes it happens earlier times than others but um just to take a step back you know one of the things we had to do in our doctorates at university of michigan was uh, for our oral prelims, we had to like study 10 pieces from across music history and study them inside out and um, study for like six months. And then you just have this epic conversation with your doctoral committee um, about these pieces. And the conversation can kind of morph or expand into other areas or other related styles or other pieces, you know, corollaries to the music that you chose, the 10 pieces that you chose. Mm. It was like a one of my first big research projects, you just kind of do open-ended research. Like, oh, this thing is relevant to this piece and then I'll study that thing. And then, well, this <laughs> thing is related to that thing. I study that, you know, and you kind of go down this rabbit hole of research. And so I learned a lot from that. It was probably one of the most important, you know, assignments that I did as a doctoral yeah. student. And um, I've used that as a model for like getting started with pieces. So I, I turn a lot of my pieces into research projects if I'm writing, you know, in a certain style or a piece about a something, you know, I'll do lots of research around it um, and study lots of music, listen to a lot of music. I keep lots of notes. I have Google Docs, you know, you know, just just kind of like organizing all my ideas. And I just kind of compose, try, try to get started on a piece somewhat like holographically, just like 
yeah have have a very uh, kind of a fuzzy idea of what i want and just sort of like getting all these ideas and then they start to gel together and it's kind of i'm working in a in kind of a neighborhood of ideas and then they they start to um bond together in in very mysterious ways so (laughs) you know it's kind that's kind of like the trying to avoid the writer's block is just having a very open-ended method but it's open-ended but it's also a method that leads to you know something that can be more concrete yeah no that's that's great i yeah i haven't haven't talked to anybody yet who's like yeah i don't i don't deal with that <laughs> everybody i think deals with that a little bit in in some way or the, or another um so it's always really interesting to hear how, how people sort of work their way through that um i would say a lot of with writer's block you know it can be it oftentimes can be a worry about yourself like what am i creating mm, and then yeah. why is it it's not good because I'm not good enough or I don't have the capacity, you know, or I'm out of ideas. And so um, like the idea of staring at a blank screen or a blank sheet of music, um, you know, I just don't have it in me. I, how can I build up an entire piece, like one note at a time? Sure. So starting with other ideas, other music, getting ideas from other music. Um, I remember like in Masks and Machines, like I, I like, I did a Stravinsky thing. I, I like rewrote, old music so i i started with a bunch of baroque music and i started playing with it adjusting notes and after like a month of work the music sounded completely different and it sounded kind of baroque but also modern sort of like stravinsky did with puccinella that composing method that was a really great way to kind of like just bypass any writer's block you know because you're starting with music right Um, it can also help to think of yourself um, you know, you're a composer, but you can also think of yourself as a producer. So what if you said, I'm a producer today, someone, someone like an artist that, that, that brings together other artists or brings together lots of different people to create an album of music or something, you know, you can think of yourself as someone like that, or you're putting on a show, you're producing a show. Like if you think that way, what, what, what are the steps you would take to make that happen? And then that could be, the beginning of, of, a, of a composition just thinking you know it's not about you it's about the creating something uh the the, the final product or whatever, whatever the final piece of art is you know getting let getting outside of yourself and, and thinking yeah like a like a producer it can just help to kind of rewire your brain if you're having trouble yeah no i think that's i think that's a really great way to look at things um, because it is almost like you're you're sort of curating a musical experience even though you're creating it, you're still, uh, you, you still sort of have to take a, a little bit sort of a, a world view of what it's supposed to look like at the end. I really yeah, love that. We're at the end of the day, are, you know, this is kind of interesting, you know, topic, but you know, are we, are we entertainers? You know, are we just at the end of the day, music, I mean, it's entertainment, right? I don't know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, sometimes that can help you, uh, help you, uh, you know, kind of bypass all that mess in your head that's keeping you from getting started. Yeah, right. Wonderful. Well, um, let's talk. Let's talk practically for a second. Is there anything um, that you've bought, studio purchase, hardware or software, something that you've uh, that you've found that has totally changed your life or, or made your writing process easier or anything like that? Sure. Yeah, I would say. The hundred percent clear winner is the computer monitor that I have. I have a forty-three inch, four K Dell monitor. Oh wow! I think it's normally used by like stock traders because you can have <laughs> four, <laughs> you can have four ten eighty p ten eighty p feeds, sure. so you have like four screens on one. Yeah. But I just use it as a full screen, so I can. It's a huge screen. It's right here, but um, I can view two pages of of a full score and high resolution, crystal clear at a time. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's the clearest investment you can make as a, as a composer. Uh, it's like composing with two lead balls tied to your feet, you know, like you just can't see anything. You can't right. see the, it's hard. It's very hard to see the big picture. Yeah. You know? It just, it's, and it's like a breathing room. It's like, you're in a, you're trying to move around in a, in a little, you know, five, five by five closet or something. You don't have any, room to breathe or, or move so the big monitor really is a key thing for me and you know some of these big monitors are not that expensive anymore they used to be but not anymore so right 
that's much more approachable these days. Right. Yeah. So that's the, that's the clear thing, the easiest, most, the biggest, you know, lowest cost for highest reward. <laughs> and then the other thing is the software I use. I compose a lot of my music in digital performer. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like a sequencer and yep. it's, you know, it's very stripped down. I don't put in dynamics or articulations though. I can kind of craft the MIDI data to sound the right way. I'm always right. thinking about dynamics and articulations, but when I'm writing the music, it's really more about the notes and mm. uh, using a sequencer really helps me focus on getting the right notes and, um, and really getting really good counterpoint because I can kind of swipe over the notes and scrub over them and, sure. and really just listen on a micro level. And it's, it's much smoother and continuous than a notation program, which is kind of like clunky and, you know, it right. feels like, feels like a little bit more separation. Yeah. Um, if you hit play and then you wait a second and then it clunks along, you know, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't feel like there's this organic connection with the music that I do with a sequencer. Oh. Um, so I, I really prefer you know, and, and digital performer, in my opinion, for like notated music, writing notated, you know, contemporary classical music in a sequencer, digital performer is really the best program still because mm. um, uh, it has really good notation built into it. So That's basic great. Notation without, without all the articulations and dynamics and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, okay. Do, do you have any, um, what advice would you give to a uh, to a young composer that's just starting out? Maybe somebody that's in high school and started messing around with writing. And... Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say, you know, c- composition is, is a long journey. Um, with other instruments in other fields, like people learning violin or piano, people can kind of, you know, there's prodigies and there's, people can kind of skyrocket to fame or, or have, you know, success in their career right. at a much younger age. Composition is kind of different than that. There's very few young superstar composers. And oftentimes if they are, they, they burn out, you know, right. <laughs> by the time they're not even 20 years old or something. So right. composition, in my opinion, is a long journey. And mm. just to be ready for that um, and just stay stay driven and stay inspired. There's nothing else that I would really want to do and it was just very, for me, it was very natural to spend every waking minute working on music and creating. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's fine to have breaks and, you know, go on trips and do other things, but um, right, just kind of embrace that passion and um, the, 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 the long-term journey, you know, yeah, expecting to like have a huge amount of success after, after a year or two and, you know, writing music. I mean, it happens, uh, but in my opinion, to kind of do it the right way, it's it's really a it's really a long journey and a, and a life, a, an entire life of, of learning your craft. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I'm 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 old enough that um, I can remember you when you had to like print out your scores and send them to publishers and performers, and you'd get them back with like all of their notes and the margins about how terrible some of your decisions were. And I loved that when I was 20 years old, when I could go and go, oh, look, they don't think I have any idea how to orchestrate. That's great. All right. Well, I'm going to throw this away. Yeah. <laughs> now now it's all digital and they just ignore you. Um, <laughs> they'll never know the the thrill of getting an envelope in the mail full of really bad things people have written about your your music when you're, when you're just starting out. Um, yeah. I don't think I've ever experienced that. I mean, I've had brutal lessons, but uh, yeah. Oh. Mm, that, yeah that'd be even worse like not even having the person there just like you know right marked up red score yeah, yeah. Scary. <laughs> those those are my favorite I, I have them somewhere i i kept them all um anyway um sidebar um so um besides music uh what are what are some things that you like to do in your spare time hobbies or non-music interests or like there are other things that you're into um Right now it's like home projects. <laughs> I bought a, I bought a house um, last year, um, about a year ago. And so just learning how to be a homeowner has been really fun. Oof. I have a large yard. Yeah. I have a, I have a riding lawnmower and uh good investment. Just, yeah. I mean, just kind of <laughs> learning all, that whole thing um, is, is fun. And there's just, there's so much to it. So I guess that's kind of my, <laughs> my main hobby right now. Um, and I also play games, you know, I play, I play some computer games 
Um, I play I play Minecraft uh, here and there. Wish I had more time. Uh, sure. Last last year when I was so busy um, composing, I, I just worked for even through COVID, I worked for several years straight and have any breaks and I was burned out. And I thought it'd be nice to like to take a month off and you know play Minecraft. <laughs> right. Um, that still hasn't happened. I don't think it ever will. But I I, I do like <laughs> games like that. Um, yeah. Creative games. So. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else. And I guess just travel. Um, I travel when I when I can. I haven't traveled much in the past couple of years, unfortunately. But uh, mm. I did go to Hawaii this year. That was amazing. And uh, I went to Europe, France, and uh, England last year for a wedding. So when I have the opportunities to travel, um, that can be like a really big creative rejuvenation as well. Oh, sure. Oh, how wonderful. That's great. Well, um you just have a couple of more things. Tell um, tell us about what you're working on right now. What kind of current projects you got uh, stirring around? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a break, as, as I mentioned, uh, kind of finished a few big projects, but uh, I'm writing a piece for one of the groups at Midwest for this December, a, a short, hopefully grade three piece, and then another uh, similar grade three or four piece for a for a festival in Colorado for after after the new year. Um, oh, nice! And then I'm simultaneously working on uh, some. I, actually, my most performed piece is called the Conductor's Spellbook. It's for orchestra, and mm. um, a lot of orchestras in the United States played it. And uh, it's like a Peter and the Wolf type educational piece for children. Oh, nice! And, uh, that piece. Um, I was contacted by an agency uh, recently, KD Schmidt. It's one of the, actually one of the biggest agencies in Europe. And they, they're going to represent the piece in, in Europe. And so I'm doing uh, Spanish, German, French, Polish, all these different translations of the piece. Uh, and it's a 45 minutes, a full concert. And it's got artwork that goes with it. It's a huge production, you know? Oh, it's nice. Again, thinking about being a producer, it's a huge production. Yeah. Um, and so that's going to be a, that's a mountain of work that I'm, that I'm working through slowly as well. Um, translating those pieces and getting the scores and parts updated, you know, it's thousands of pages of music. Oh, sure. Um, you doing the translations yourself or learning all the languages and then doing the translations or. No, no, I'm, I'm working with people. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of back and forth, you know, some of this, there's some really interesting ways things can be translated and that's that's just a whole that's a lot of work so yeah i guess that and then um kind of revising and updated some of my pieces um, i i tend to tweak and revise and iterate on my music even after yeah. the premieres <laughs> right so there's a few pieces um, that I'm ready for the fall for, for groups so you know between all that that's plenty you know the, the updates to old pieces working on the translations and and then composing some new pieces and doing housework you know that's more that's a lot for somebody yeah. taking a break. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the, the only difference is my back isn't to the wall, like finishing finishing music. So right, that's why I consider this a break. <laughs> Take it where we can get it. That's wonderful. Well, um, I always finish up these uh, these interviews with uh, with ten questions, ten secret questions. Um, they are silly and frivolous, and not at all dignified. And, um, and, and sometimes I get some of the most fascinating, um, fascinating answers here. Um, but I, I kind of wanted a fun way to end, um, our conversation. And, uh, so anyway, we will dive into that, um, a little bit and then I will, I will, we'll see what you come up with. So, um, so Paul Dooley, what's your favorite food? Um, I would say... I guess I'd have to say Mexican food mm. from California. So yeah, good choice. <laughs> that's a good choice. The Texan says good choice. Um, yeah, Mexican food. That's great. You, you mentioned you like to travel. Do you have a favorite place that you like to, to go? Like, do you have a favorite vacation spot or anything like that? Well, I try not to go back to the same place too much. Mm. Um, probably one of the craziest places I've ever been to, I'll never forget in this place that no one's ever heard of is called um, Semuk Champagne. It's like right in the middle of Guatemala. And it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. It's like natural limestone bridges and 
turquoise water flowing. It feels like something out of National Geographic. And uh, people probably shouldn't be allowed to just swim there in the pools and stuff, but we were. <laughs> so I was with one of my friends and it was like, and I was in on another planet. Um, so that was a, one of my, the biggest highlights. And it's really hard to get out there. We were riding on the backs of pickup trucks to get out there. And stuff. <laughs> it's like the middle of nowhere. So anyway. <laughs> wow. That sounds fascinating. I want to look that up. Do you, uh, do you have a favorite color? Color? Uh, probably the darker, you know, blue, navy. I, I find I was looking at my closet because I was rearranging my room here. And uh, it's a lot of kind of dark blue, green and black. So. There you go. <laughs> that, that, that tracks. That's fine. <laughs> right? It's very Michigan of you. Um, okay, so um, how do you feel about Disney World? Is it is it a happy place or is it the happiest place on earth? I couldn't say. I've never been there. That's perfect. You know, that everybody has a... <laughs> everybody has a very visceral reaction to this one. They either really, they're like, oh, I love amusement parks. Or they're like, oh my gosh, all the people, I can't take it. And it's too happy. I went Never. to Disneyland in Los Angeles when I was in high school, and I just remember my legs being extremely sore from standing in line. Yeah, but there's a lot of that. There's really a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, here's another loaded question. Um, but I, again, I'm, I'm always fascinated by what people think. Um, in a boxing match, who do you think would win between, well, uh, your former teacher, Frank DeKelly, and John Mackey? <laughs> oh, yeah pass <laughs> that could be it that, that, that could go i'll say that could go 10 rounds uh yeah no i think so too it'd be really interesting maybe the podcast will take off and like we can actually arrange like an event or something we could have it at, at midwest yeah. um okay per, per, personal question personal question uh when you go to sleep do you sleep with your socks on or socks off oh off yeah off. for sure yeah yeah, even if it's like right. minus twenty degrees out, I can't sleep with socks. Yeah, that's the right answer. Yeah, yeah, that's the right answer. Um, if there was any job other than what you do right now that you could see yourself doing, what what would that be? Holy smokes! Um, I always thought um, traffic engineering was was really cool. Really, you know, like designing the roadways and like figuring out. Like tra transit and all that. That's right. Yeah. So like, you know, cars and the way cars move on road is they're sort of like fluid dynamics. Yeah. So that that's really fascinating to me. We have a couple double roundabouts in Ann Arbor and you know, they're chaotic, but they work really well. And so, yeah. you know, the, without the roundabouts, it's a total it'd be total disaster. So but then but then every September, you know, when all the new people move to town, the roundabouts get a little less efficient because people sure. don't know what they're doing. <laughs> that type of thing is traffic engineering is pretty cool actually oh that's fascinating i love that um is there a uh, is there a movie or a tv show that you really like that most people do not um like a, a show specifically that people don't like in yeah, general maybe yeah i guess i'd say a show that's not really known by very very many people has the niche following. It's called Party Down, mm, mm -hmm. and it was on the Stars Network, and it was two seasons from like I think two thousand nine and ten or something, and it's a fantastic show, and uh, it's about struggling actors in Los Angeles that are that work catering, you know, because catering <laughs> is a good job to have for networking, you know. Yeah, so every episode's yeah. at a, every episode's at a different location, and it's just very cringe, you know. You know, there's a lot of alcohol, alcohol, you know, abuse, and it's just like bizarre. And um, they actually just produced a third season recently um, for all the fans. Like ten years later, it has like Adam Scott, some really, you know, um, oh sure, okay, really famous actors that were before they were big. Um, mm -hmm. It's an Apatow production, I think, Paul Rudd production. Um, so that's that's like my favorite show. I watch it at least like once a year. So party down. <laughs> I love that. That's a great answer. Um, do you have a favorite time of day to write? You, yeah, I mean, whenever there's a, a, a decent chunk of time, you mm. know. Yeah, I mean, I, I love, I, I prefer to write in the morning. Um, okay. It's when my energy level's highest. Composing is 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 got to be super high energy. Like if you're if you're not if you're tired and you're not 
like jacked up, ready to compose. I mean, I would just say, do something else, do emails, yeah, you know, go work out or do something else, but you have to be at your peak energy and, um, and focus for, for, for composing. Otherwise it's, you know, can, it, it can often be wasted time. It's, if it's, if it's the creative process, like where you're really writing the music from scratch, yeah. I can, I can do orchestration and proofreading, you know, mm -hmm. late at night when I'm like really tired. Um, well, not totally tired, but with a little less energy. So, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, love formatting parts. It's my favorite thing. Um, well, so tell everybody how they can find you out in the world um, on the socials and everything else uh, if they want to track you down after this um, in an interesting, not stalking way. Yeah. So my website is pauldooley.net. Uh, Dooley is D-O-O-L-E-Y. I have another website called conductorsspellbook.com, and that's specifically for that children's piece that I mentioned. And I'm on Instagram. I think it's Paul Dooley Music. I'm not the most active on social media. I kind of protect myself a little bit from it. Sure. <laughs> I'm also on Facebook. I have a, just a personal page. And I think I only have like 3,500 friends or something. I'm not near the 5,000 limit, so... <laughs> uh, I'm I'm happily accepting new friends. <laughs> Get room to grow. I love that. <laughs> well, uh, well, Paul, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me. It was a really fascinating conversation, and uh, I learned a lot. I hope the listeners learned a lot about you. I hope that they will track down your music and uh, program it and perform it, and certainly look forward to. The next time we just sort of run into each other out in the wild and uh, get to hear something else of yours. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Great, great questions and, and great to great to chat with you, Jason. All right. Well, take care and uh, we'll see everybody next time on Composer Chat. Composer Chat is brought to you by SCM Media. Is your audience dead? Bring it back to life. And thanks to my guest this week, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to watch for next week's episode with the next composer on my list. And you can find my other podcast, Beyond the Belt, Adventures from the Outer Rim, a sci-fi drama, anywhere that podcasts are streamed. Listen free. Seasons one through three are out now. You can find me on Instagram at jasonnitch.composer. You can find me on threads at jasonnitch.composer. You can find me on the Facebooks if you're old like me, Jason K. Niche. You can find me on the web at jasonnitch.com or at beyondthebeltpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>